Good morning to everybody and welcome again to the assembly here. It's so good to see all that are able to be with us and we're very thankful for everybody's presence. This morning, as you can see on the title, I want to talk about, or I've titled the lesson, Great Failures. Well, failure is something that typically is associated with weakness, and there's a reason for that. That reason is because typically the reason for failure is because of some form of weakness. When a sports team loses to another sports team, it's because there was some weakness, whether that was their offense or their defense, and that weakness was exploited by the opposing team, and they lost the battle. When an army loses to another army, it is because they either were just simply weaker than the other army, or the strategy of the other army was able to exploit some form of weakness and gain the victory and the upper hand. Spiritually speaking, whenever we fail, whenever we sin, it is, in some sense and in some way, a form of weakness. Now, as we think about weakness, nobody likes to be weak. Nobody wants to be weak, and nobody likes to think of themselves as weak. And especially when it comes to spirituality, sometimes we consider others, and we consider them as backsliding, or weak Christians, or those that maybe we're not too surprised if they fail. And we think of ourselves, while we recognize we're human, and surely we make mistakes from time to time, we don't like to think of ourselves as weak. But as I look through the scripture, one of the things that's amazing to me is that some of the strongest characters, some of the most faithful men in the Bible, had some of the most spectacular and greatest failures that you can read about. And that teaches several lessons to us. First of all, I hope that it's a reminder that every one of us must be on guard. It doesn't matter how strong you think you are as a Christian, you have a great and a terrible enemy in Satan and there is always a target on your back. He is always ro roaming about like a roaring lion, Peter tells us, seeking whom he may devour. And that includes you, even if you are spiritually strong. He is looking for any and every weakness of yours that he can exploit. And make no mistake about it, he has been successful at doing so to some incredibly strong men and women through history. And so we should always be on our guard. It should be a reminder that even if we don't think of ourselves as strong in an arrogant sense, it should call us out of lethargy and spiritual mediocrity. Some people go through life, or at least it appears that they go through their spiritual life, not giving a whole lot of attention to their spiritual welfare, their spiritual well-being, and their spiritual growth, as if they can overcome the greatest adversary the world has ever seen by just spending a couple of minutes or even an hour or two here or there at a worship service and maybe thinking about some spiritual things from time to time. If the greatest men in history have succumbed to failure and weakness, then what makes us think that mediocrity is going to lead us to success? But also, one lesson that I hope that we're able to point out this morning is that as great as our failures may sometimes be, we have a greater Redeemer and we have a great opportunity if we will turn to him. So what I want to do first a little while this morning is just go through several examples of some great and mighty men who succumb to weakness and see what we can learn from these individuals and their failures. First of all, I want to consider the man Moses. Now Moses was an incredible man. In fact, throughout the Bible, which is filled with all sorts of incredible heroes of the faith, Moses is one of those who you might call a man among men. 
He's one of those who stands head and shoulders above even the greatest of the Old Testament heroes. He is simply one of the most amazing men who have ever lived in world history and certainly within the Lord's people. He had an incredible birth and he had an advantageous upbringing. He was able to be brought up in the home of Pharaoh where instead of being killed, he enjoyed all the pleasures that that would have brought about and all the advantages. He had perhaps the best education that a person could possibly imagine. He had the best of everything that you could ask for. And yet these things didn't taint Moses when he grew older. He knew who he was. He knew that he was actually a Hebrew and he cared for his people. He cared for God's people and he trusted in the God of his people, even though his people were enslaved. Now he had to run away from Egypt after murdering a man for 40 years, but then God called him back to bring Israel out of bondage. And he did that. He and Aaron were the spokesmen for God. They oversaw the great exodus out of Egypt in one of the greatest examples of leadership and bravery that you can read about. But on top of all of Moses' great attributes, we find that for a man who could have been one of the most arrogant and one of the most proud men in all the world, that he was said to be the meekest man in the world. In Numbers chapter 12, we read a story about when Miriam and Aaron, that's Moses' brother and sister, uh, questioned him. They got a little envious of his leadership and, what, and uh, his authority. And they began to try and question him. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But they questioned him. And in verse 3 it says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Now, that's a pretty impressive thing to be said. That's a spirit-inspired explanation or description of Moses. He was the meekest man in all the earth. Now, you may be humble, but would you be willing to say, it's kind of even hard to imagine saying it if you're humble, but would you feel confident in saying that you're one of the most humble people in the world? That you're one of the meekest people in all the world? How spiritually strong do you have to be to be the meekest man in all the world. And that's Moses. The Bible tells us he was meeker than anybody on the face of the earth. And we see a little bit more about his great strengths. He had a very special relationship with God. When, Mo, when Miriam and Aaron questioned him and were told that Moses was a meek man, God also came to them and spoke. And he spoke about his relationship with Moses. In Numbers chapter 12 verse 6, God said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? God says, there have been prophets. There had been some people before Moses and there would be prophets after Moses that God would speak to. But typically when God spoke to a prophet, he would do so through some form of revelation. Often that would include dreams and visions. We can read about some of those dreams and visions that other prophets had. But he said that's not the case with Moses. God spoke directly with Moses. God valued Moses so greatly and honored Moses so greatly that God spoke to Moses plainly, as it were, 
face to face. Later in Deuteronomy 34 verses 10 through 12 after the death of Moses this is what the Bible records about him. It says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Moses, again, stood head and shoulders, it seems, above almost all the other Bible characters. And yet, for all of Moses' strength, for being the meekest man in the world, for being a prophet whom God spoke with directly, Moses certainly was not perfect. And Moses was a man who allowed frustration to get to him. In Numbers chapter 20, beginning in verse 10, we, or in that chapter there in chapter 20, we read a story, and it's a familiar story because something like this had already happened to the nation of Israel. As they're wandering through the wilderness, they come to an area where there's no water. Now we have an entire nation of people and their livestock, and they need water. And I'm sure you can commiserate with them if you've ever been a little bit thirsty. When we get hungry or when we get thirsty, we start to get grumpy. And if we don't get that water, if we don't get that food pretty quickly, we get really grumpy. And Moses was leading an entire nation of people that was thirsty. And they began to fear for their well-being and the well-being of their livestock. And they began to get angry at Moses and Aaron for leading them away from Egypt and for leading them into this area of drought where they had no water. Now, they should have trusted in God by this point. But God speaks to Moses and to Aaron. In verse 10 it says, Moses and God had told them, he said, no, you're going to speak to the rock. Now earlier this had happened sometime before and there was a rock and God said you strike the rock with your staff and water will come out. And that's exactly what happened. Well this situation's repeating itself but God told Moses this time he said you take your staff but you speak to the rock in the presence of all the assembly and water will come forth. But in verse 10 it says then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them here now you rebels shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. Now, God was gracious enough to go ahead and let that water pour forth, or that water pour out of the rock to water the Israelites and their livestock. But Moses hadn't done what God had said. Now, that may seem like a small thing to you and me. That may seem as small as eating a piece of forbidden fruit. But when God says to do something, God expects it to be done the way he says it to be done. And God had told Moses, you speak to the rock. Now listen in verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses spent a third of his life leading the Israelite children towards the promised land. He went through great sacrifice to lead and help these people. On more than one occasion, he stood in the gap between them and the anger of God to try and protect them from annihilation. But that didn't mean that Moses was beyond temptation himself. And in this moment, Moses seems to be so frustrated with the people the rebellious nature of the people, their constant murmuring and complaining, 
has gotten to Moses to such a degree that even the meekest man in the world loses his cool and loses his patience and momentarily loses his faith. Notice God said, why did you not believe in me? Now Moses believed in God to a degree. He was willing to strike the rock. But apparently Moses lost faith at least for a moment. And didn't remember what God said. Or didn't believe that speaking would be enough. And so he struck the rock. And God says you did not believe in me. And because Moses had changed what God had said. He says you did not uphold me as holy. In the eyes of the people. One of the greatest leaders this world has ever seen. Failed to uphold God as holy in the eyes of the people. We have to beware of how dangerous frustration can be. Life is frustrating. People are frustrating. Sometimes people don't do what they ought to do. Sometimes people intentionally do things against us. Sometimes people let us down. We can never let the failures of others deteriorate our own faith. We can never become so frustrated with others that we lose sight of what our responsibility is. Whether that is us as church leaders, us as parents, or us simply as friends trying to influence and help one another. Even if we are incredibly meek and humble and loving, we must beware of the danger of frustration. It caused even the great Moses to momentarily lack faith. And he paid a great cost for that. He would get to see the promised land. God before Moses died would allow him to go up on a mountain and view the promised land. But he never set foot in the place that he had led the nation to. Sin has a terrible price and the cost is very, very high. We must make sure that we are on guard because even when we are strong, we can have moments of great failure. There's another very strong individual that we read about in scriptures that although he was very strong had a great weakness and that is the man Samson. In Judges chapter 13 we're introduced to Samson. Israel had been through one of their cycles of rebellion again and they'd been oppressed by the Philistines for 40 years and God determined to begin delivering them. And so he appeared, he sent his his angel to a man and to a woman. This family was barren. The woman was barren. They had had no children. But the angel of the Lord promised that she was going to conceive and bear a child. But also told her that this was to be a special child. And part of that was that this child was to be dedicated to God. He was going to be a Nazarite from birth. Now there was a part of the law that allowed for men or women to take a Nazarite vow. And those were typically temporary. And there were things that went along with that. They couldn't cut their hair. They couldn't partake in fruit of the vine. They couldn't be around or touch dead things. And it was a a vow of dedication to the Lord. But this man, this child was going to be dedicated to God from before birth. He was going to be a special instrument of God. And of course... This was Samson. And in verse 24 of Judges 13, it says, And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtol. This man, Samson, by the way, is a name that means sunshine. This 
family was so happy to be able to have Samson. Surely they were happy to know that their son was to be a deliverer. He was a deliverer promised by God. He was dedicated to God and he was blessed by God. God gave this man incredible strength. There's no man we can read of that physically was stronger than Samson. He was able to kill a lion with his bare hands. Now we read of a couple of other individuals in the Bible that killed lions. But Samson's the only one that we're told took a lion and ripped it apart like you would a young baby goat. Now I've never ripped a baby goat in half. I'm sure that's not an easy feat in and of itself. But to be able to do that to a lion, that's the strength that Samson had. Samson had the strength to kill an army of a thousand trained warriors with nothing but the jawbone of a donkey. He had the strength to rip a huge city gate off of its hinges and carry it up a hill and plant it in the hillside in defiance of the people that were trying to capture him that day. He had incredible strength. But for all of his strength, Samson lacked self-control. He was a man driven by his passions. We see him feasting with the enemy. And those feasts probably were not just simple get-togethers like our enjoyable get-togethers or dinners that we have sometimes. Those were probably the raucous party type festivals that the Philistines would have thrown. We see a man that constantly was chasing the wrong women. We see a man engaged in immorality. We see a man that didn't take his role as a deliverer for God's people seriously. You see him in a vineyard. That's when he gets attacked by the lion. Now tell me, what is a man who is not even supposed to touch the fruit of the vine doing in a vineyard? Not taking his vow to God seriously. We see a man that even though he's a Nazarite, was around death constantly. And then of course we see in the end, persuaded by Delilah, an immoral and wicked woman whom he had chosen to be with, was able to trick him and deceive him into breaking the final of his vows, and that was cutting his hair and losing his strength. Now I think Samson must have trusted in himself. He must have believed that he could overcome any obstacle and forgot that it was God who had given him his strength. And thus we see the strongest man in the world brought low and defeated by one conniving woman. And you see, it doesn't matter how strong we are. It doesn't matter how talented we are. It doesn't matter how much others praise us. When we begin to trust in self, when we begin to lose self-control, when we begin to be influenced by the world, all that strength, all that talent is for naught. Because Satan will be able to exploit that weakness, however small we may think it is, and overcome us, just as Samson was overcome. Or what about King David? David's a lot like Moses. And the fact that when you, if you were to just take all of the heroes of the Bible and line them up, all these incredible men and women, David's another one of those that just stands head and shoulders above the rest. David's another one that in a room full of bright and shining stars, he still shines brighter. And after all, it's David who God himself describes as a man after God's own heart. How would you like God to say that about you? I can't imagine anything more comforting, anything more promising, anything that could solidify my faith better than knowing from God himself 
that I was an individual whose heart was like God. That's what we should be striving for. But I think we all know the difficulty of that and the challenges in that. But God said, David is a man after my own heart. How righteous do you have to be to be such a man? David became the idyllic king. From the time of David forward, you know how kings were measured? They were measured by David. Now Solomon was incredibly wise. We're going to talk about Solomon in a moment. He was wise. He was rich. He was successful. Solomon was not the ideal. If a king was righteous, and he was said to have followed in the steps of David, that's impressive. To be the ideal of leadership and rulership of God's people. What an incredible man. What a strong man. And we can read of so much of his faith. And his, the things he overcame. And then as I'm sure we all know. This strong man. This man after God's own heart. Was then able to commit adultery. And murder. And lie about all of it. In 2 Samuel chapter 11 we read the story. How David was stayed home. I don't know. I've heard people say that was the, the beginning of the problem. And maybe it was. I don't know why David was home. While his army was out waging war. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Verse 2 it says. It happened one late afternoon. When David arose from his couch. And was walking on the roof of the king's house. That he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliab, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. You know, this story has very innocent beginnings. Yet I don't know exactly why David stayed in Jerusalem. Now, I do know there's other parts where in the story of David when he had been in some dangerous situations and men like Joab and his commanders made David stay back. They said they, they didn't want David's life to be in danger. And that may be one of the situations here. Joab and the rest of the army have things well in control. There's no need of putting David's life in danger perhaps. And so he remains at the palace. And one day he's on the couch and he gets up to take a stroll on the roof. There's nothing wrong with that. He's enjoying the beautiful day. But he sees something. And it's not a sin that he sees this. It's an accident. There is a woman who is bathing on the rooftop. I've heard some people question that. I don't think that was an uncommon practice. I don't think she's trying to seduce the king. This is an accident. But do you know what you do when accidents happen like this? You turn away. And if David would have just turned away. Well, she was a beautiful woman. And that poses a temptation. But instead of doing what he knows he ought to, he gazes and he lets his look linger. And you know, the Bible sums it up so succinctly, but I can't help but wonder if there's at least some struggle in David's mind. Surely he knows this isn't right to gaze and lust after this woman. But when temptation takes that hold and when sin finds a foothold, it clings and it sticks if we don't get rid of it. And so as David thinks about it, it says that he made an inquiry about the woman. Why did he do that? I don't know that David 
was intending to have this woman brought to the palace just so he could sleep with her. Maybe he convinced himself he just wanted to get to know this woman. Maybe he lied to himself and convinced himself that he just needed to know this person. That sounds silly, but how many times do we tell similar lies in our own minds as we justify getting just a little bit closer to sin? And the woman's brought. We're not told about how they met or the conversation or what took place. Again, I don't know that we should assume that David just immediately throws himself into adultery. But as he meets this woman Bathsheba, and you have to feel sorry for this woman, I don't know how much blame to lay at her feet. Here she is brought before the king, and they end up committing adultery. Well, that has consequences. A few months later, sometime later, she writes to David to tell him that she is pregnant. And you know the story. David tries to cover his tracks. He calls Uriah back from the battlefield. Tries to convince Uriah to go take some uh, rest and relaxation. Hoping that that will send him home to sleep with his wife. And they can pretend that the baby that is born sometime later is Uriah's. Uriah's an honorable man. He doesn't feel it's right for him to go and enjoy the company of his wife and the comforts of home. While his brethren are out on the battlefield. And so he won't go. David tries to get him drunk and trick him into doing that. And Uriah still won't go. And so David resorts. The last thing he can make sense of. He sends a note with Uriah to Joab the commander. That says you make sure that Uriah dies in this battle. And Joab does. And so David after it's told that Uriah the Hittite dies. He brings poor weeping And mourning Bathsheba who just lost her husband and become a widow into his palace. And the gracious king marries her. And how wonderful it must look that David is doing this. But then in chapter 12 the prophet Nathan comes before David. This is some time later. The child's probably, some commentators think the child's six months old or older at this point. And Nathan tells this pitiful story about a man who had one ewe lamb. And he loved the lamb. It ate at the dinner table with his children. It slept in his bed at night. But he had a rich neighbor who had all sorts of flocks. And when somebody visited this neighbor, instead of taking from his flock, this man went over and stole the one ewe lamb of this poor man and slaughtered it and fed it to his guests. And David's furious with this man. This hypothetical man. And in verse 7, Nathan says to David, You are the man. Now listen to what the Lord says. Nathan says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Uriah has been wronged. Bathsheba has been wronged. This child has been wronged. But do you know who has been wronged the most in this situation? God. God who had built David up. God who had given David strength. God who had delivered David. And in a moment of passion and weakness, David, a man after God's own heart, despised the Lord. Notice again verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Do you think David thought that he despised the Lord? 
Do you think anybody that knew David thought he despised the Lord? How can a man after God's own heart despise the Lord? That's what sin is. Every time we sin, what that is, is that is a choice to fulfill our own pleasures and our own gratification instead of serving our Creator and our God and our Redeemer. And whatever else we want to try and console ourselves with, every time we do that, we are despising the Lord and His Word. And it's not just weak Christians that do that. Even the strongest of us can despise the Lord when we allow the momentary pleasures of sin to overthrow us and cause us to break our faith. David's son is another good example Solomon was the wisest man in the world. He grew up with the idyllic king. He was chosen by God to be David's successor. And in 1 Kings chapter 3, in verses 10, uh, you, re- you can read a story there. How God appeared to Solomon in a dream and asked Solomon what he wanted. And instead of asking for riches, instead of asking for success <clears throat> over his enemies, <clears throat> Solomon asked for wisdom. He asked for the ability to be discerning, for the ability to rightly govern God's people. And God said, I'll give you that. And he said, but not only will I give you that, but because you've asked for this instead of these other things, I'm going to give you the other things as well. Solomon was going to have great wealth beyond imagination. He was going to enjoy peace and prosperity over his enemies. And he was going to have wisdom. Verse 12 of 1 Kings 3 says, Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. Again, that is God saying, Solomon, you are going to be the wisest man who ever lives. Until the time of Solomon, there had not been a man that was as wise as he was. And since Solomon's reign, there has not been a man, save for Jesus himself, who has been wiser and more discerning than Solomon. We have a world full of intellectuals who have learned so much and none of them could compare to the wisdom of Solomon. But just as the strongest man in the world was overthrown by women, so too was the smartest and wisest man in the world. If we go a little bit later into the book of 1 Kings, we go over to 1 Kings chapter 11. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. The rest of that passage goes on to tell us about his 700 wives and 300 concubines. And verse 4 says, When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. Just because you possess wisdom doesn't mean that you'll exercise wisdom. Solomon was the wisest man in the world, but he allowed the same problems that vex all humanity to overthrow him. The simple lust of the flesh 
that led him to intermarry with women whom God had told him and the people not to intermarry with. And they did exactly what God had warned Israel they would do. And the law God had said why he didn't want his people to intermarry with foreign women. It wasn't because God was racist or bigoted. It was because God didn't want his people's hearts to be turned away to other gods. And he said that's what intermarrying with foreign nations will do. And that's what it did. And by the way, if we think that we are better off... And if we think that we will not be influenced by the world and relationships with the world, please don't forget this. The wisest man who's ever lived was turned because of these relationships. And we think that we're wise to make our closest relationships, friendships, and marriages with worldly people. It didn't work out for Solomon and it would be unwise for us to repeat that mistake. The wisest man in the world committed idolatry. Built idols to all sorts of gods. Because even great men can make great mistakes. Well, one final character. We'll turn to the New Testament. And consider the Apostle Peter. Now... Unlike Solomon and Moses and Samson, we're never told anything about Peter that I can remember that he was the greatest at. We're not told that he was the strongest or the wisest or the meekest. But when you read the story of Peter, you see an amazing man. You see a man who was one of Jesus' closest friends. He was in what we often call the inner circle of Jesus' friends, along with James and John. He was one of the three that Jesus would call to his side in some of Jesus' greatest moments and times of greatest need. He was one of the three that Jesus had go with him further into the Garden of Gethsemane. He was one of the three that Jesus took up onto the Mountain of Transfiguration, meaning he was one of only three human beings that got to see the transfigured form of Jesus that's an amazing thing that Peter was able to see. He was a strong man, a devout man. He had been promised by Jesus that he would be given the keys of the kingdom. And he had even been warned about his failure. When Jesus said that the disciples would forsake him, Peter was willing to say, no sir, I'll die with you. And I'm sure he meant it. Because just a few moments later when the crowd comes armed with swords and clubs and who knows what else. It is Peter who takes out a sword and begins going to work on the crowd. And is stopped immediately. But after that, Peter gives in to fear. He runs with all of the other disciples. Now he does get some gumption of courage back because he makes it back to the high priest's house. John's already there and Peter goes in as well. But we read there that Peter began to warm himself by the fires of the enemy. He's sitting amongst the crowd. And there he denies Jesus. We'll read Matthew 26 verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them and all saying, I do not know what you mean. 
And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to answer, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Here is one of Jesus' closest friends. Arguably the strongest of the disciples. And he's cursing and swearing and denying with every fiber of his being that he even knows Jesus at all. What a great man. And what a great failure. As we look at these lessons though, again the lesson that we need to learn is that all of us need to be on guard. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 12, after repeating the story of the Israelite nation and their many failures in the wilderness, Paul said to the Corinthian Christians and to us as well, Therefore let him who thinks he stand take heed or beware, lest he fall. It's easy to sit and read about Samson and Moses and David and Solomon and Peter and the nation of Israel and all the other failures that are recorded in the Bible and dissect them and see where they went wrong and diagnose the problems and say what they should have done. That's not the main reason that we have these stories recorded. The main reason is so that you and I can learn from them and apply the lessons we learn in our lives. So that we can be stronger. We have to recognize if even these great men were able to give in to moments of weakness. We can too. And Satan will be trying. No matter how long you've been in the church. No matter how strong you are. No matter how spiritually mature you are. As long as you have breath in your body. Satan is gunning for you. And you must be on your guard. We see some specific things to beware of. The danger of frustration that Moses faced. The danger of fear that Peter succumbed to. And Peter was a brave man. He was a great man. That's how powerful fear can be. That's how powerful the fear of persecution can be. We must be on our guard. The danger of evil influence. Don't let it be lost upon you that of those five examples that we gave this morning, three of them failed because of women. And that can go the other way. It's not just that men fail because of women. Women can fail because of men. Now two of those were evil women. David's again, we can't lay the blame at Bathsheba's feet. But the lust of the flesh... And the evil influence of worldly people is an incredible danger. If you're young and unmarried and seeking a spouse, remember that. If you're a parent raising children, remember that. If you're a person that has friendships, remember that. But lastly, and thankfully, another great lesson is that great failures can be overcome. We're not specifically told about Solomon. But it is highly believed by many people that Solomon did repent in his later years. That the book of Ecclesiastes is perhaps 
that repentance and the lesson that he's learned. But we're not told specifically. But for the other four that we've studied, every one of them was able to overcome their failure. Moses was not allowed to go into the land of promise. But he did inherit an even better land. The land of heaven. We can trust that he was saved. We see him later on in the biblical story. Standing not far from Peter by the way. On the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. We see Samson although he was blinded and captured. Was able to overcome his enemies when he humbled himself. And turned to God and prayed to God once again. And Samson's name finds its way into Hebrews 11. That great hall of fame of faith. David. For a great failure. Had a great broken heart when he realized the full weight of what he'd done. And he begged for forgiveness. And Nathan the prophet said the Lord has forgiven you. That didn't wipe away all the consequences David was going to face. But he was forgiven. And he did what he could throughout much of the rest of his life. And we can trust he he wrote psalms. He wrote a great portion of the Old Testament through the Psalms. He became the idyllic king. It was still his lineage that was going to lead to Jesus. And of course Peter. For such an abysmal failure. When it came to denying the Lord. He repented. The Lord forgave him. The Lord still chose Peter to be the one who had the keys to the kingdom. It was still Peter who had preached the first great gospel sermon. It was Peter who had first preached to the Gentiles. Peter would be a pillar in the church at Jerusalem. He would lead the church for decades. He would write portions of the New Testament. And ultimately he would give his life in service to the king. Yes. I don't want this morning's sermon to be terrifying and to make you think that we're all doomed for failure. I want us to be wary of the temptations that are out there. I want us to be on guard. But most of all, I want us to realize that every one of us is a failure. Every one of us has failed. Every one of us is weak. But every single one of us can overcome the failures of sin in our lives through Jesus. Through His redeeming blood. And through his power. Just as these other men were able to overcome. Through their faith in God. And obedience to him. We can too. Every one of us have failed. No matter how great we may be. Or how great we may not be. That just means we need to be vigilant. That means we need to recognize our own weaknesses. And our own failures. And work to overcome them. By clinging to Christ. If you're here today and you're lost in sin, that is a terrible failure. And it is a failure that will lead to eternal separation from God. But you do not have to be defined by your failures. Notice that none of these men were. All of these men had great failures, but we don't think immediately of their failures. We don't define Moses or Samson or David or Solomon or Peter by their failures. Why? Because they were able to overcome those things. And your eternal fate does not have to be defined by your failures. If you want to have your sins washed away, they can be. You can become a child of God instead a child of Satan. If you believe in Jesus and you're ready to place your faith in Him, then you need to repent of your sins. Turn from your way of living a sinful life and choose to begin following the Lord. Confess Jesus as the Son of God, as the Lord of your life, giving your allegiance to Him, and be ready 
and be and submit to baptism so that your sins can be washed away and you can be made new and you can begin your new walk with Christ. Or if you've done that, but you would like the prayers of the church on your behalf, perhaps some sin you would like to confess or some other request that you need to make requiring prayers, then we stand ready and willing to assist you. So we invite you to come while we stand and while we sing.